This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Logically, it's the process of improvement, which is more important than the actual idea of what you're going to build. A lot of people don't understand that. So think about the great technology companies, Microsoft, for example. Microsoft in the 1970s, right, with DOS, has nothing to do with Microsoft in 2022, right? It's a completely different company. It has completely different products. So it's not really the idea that made them successful. It must be something else that made them successful. And I posit that what made them successful is the process of improvement of that idea. And that's what makes companies great. How can a company actually achieve great success? Our guest today has a method that every business leader needs to hear. Meet Borja Shaknovich. He is the CEO of Airslate, a workflow automation company that he's evolved out of an existing endeavor called PDF Filler. Borja believes that it's not always a brilliant concept that makes a business thrive, but it's the ability of its leaders to improve incrementally upon existing ideas over time. Tune in to hear more about the compelling philosophy that has made Airslate such a success. Welcome, Borja Shaknovich. Thanks, Albert. Nice to be here. Listen, we're pumped to have you here. You got an interesting company. Your background's amazing. And that's why we want to start this show right away and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we are going to enter right away. We're going to enter the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Borja, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. We read that you are an immigrant. You immigrated to the United States at 11 years old. Is that accurate? That's right. All right. You are also, your father, excuse me, got his first job at Harvard. Is that accurate? Correct. Okay. Immigrant dads are notoriously tough on their kids to educate themselves. Your dad's working at Harvard. What was the pressure like to learn as a little kid? Yeah, my parents uh, did a really good job in making sure that good was never good enough. And I think that that made me who I am. Absolutely. You got, you nailed it. Uh, absolutely. You know, whenever I brought an A, somebody else, you know, the, the argument was somebody else got an A plus. So. <laughs> what did you think the first time, you know, because 11 years old is old enough to remember. What was your first reaction coming from the Soviet Union coming to the United States? Uh, immigration was difficult for me, for sure, uh, because there's a lot of differences in the things that people value in the value systems. So the value system in the uh, Soviet Union was very much uh, focused around education. And uh, in America, it was very focused on citizenship. And so I thought that and being a good citizen and I thought that uh, people in the United States didn't really do anything um, because when I was four, uh, you know, I was doing things academically that the U.S. was doing in, you know, maybe seventh or eighth grade uh, when I was in fourth grade. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was basically a lot of watching of uh, bad TV when I was in uh, middle school. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, your education followed you through. Uh, you went on and to get a PhD in, and I don't even know what these subjects are, bioinformatics and computational biophysics. Uh, I, I think I've mixed some. A PhD in bioinformatics and systems biology from BU and a bachelor's in computational biophysics 
from University of Illinois. It sounded like you got your first job as an academic. What did your parents react when what was your parents reaction when you said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go entrepreneur. I'm going to do a startup. Yeah, it was uh, much to the chagrin of my mother because they know I was actually a dropout. Well, almost a dropout. It was a long story, <laughs> but I was kind of a failure in high school and uh, almost uh, failed out of college as well. And uh, and then I got my PhD, which was a big surprise to my parents. And then when I got my faculty appointment, that was an even bigger surprise to my parents. <laughs> and so they thought that they finally lucked out and I was going to have a, a normal life. And in the middle of uh, 2008, right before the financial crisis, I left that cushy job in academia to become an entrepreneur for uh, what my mother thought was a really you know stupid idea. And uh, yeah, they thought that I was going to you know, live uh, with them uh, in the garage for the rest of their <laughs> lives, you know, and so they were very depressed about that. Well, listen, you know, you see, you, it, it seemed to work out pretty great. You started a company called PDF Filler, and now you are currently at AirSlate. We want to talk a little bit about AirSlate specifically. It's this is now your second company. Um, give us an idea what for our audience, what is AirSlate and what exactly do you guys do? Well, that's not exactly accurate, actually. Uh, oh. So uh, what happened was that I, I started my first company, which was a network for scientists that was aimed at, you know, making the world a better place. And it was called I Am Scientist uh, and uh, allow people to publish papers and get reviews of those papers faster uh, in order to improve the economy of science. And I that didn't work out. But one of my initial investors was running PDF filler at that time. And so I came to him when my first company failed. Uh, and I said, listen, you know, I have this technology that I can share with you. And he's like, I don't know how to use your technology. Uh, why don't you come run PDF filler with me? And so that was the uh, in 2012. And then uh, after that, we ran and bootstrapped PDF filler to, you know, uh, about 16 to $17 million run rate over the next four wow. years from 2012 to 2016. Uh, and then when we got our first investment from General Catalyst in the middle of 2017, uh, we bought another company called SignNow. And at that time, we renamed our original company, PDF Filler, into AirSlate um, gotcha. in, order to, uh, in order to look much more broadly at uh, workflow and document workflow automation. So AirSlate is really a company that is now uh, not only focused around just digitization like the initial product PDF Filler was focused on uh, and not really only focused on the e-signature component of it like SignNow was initially, but it really is a suite of products that allow people to run their businesses and run their whole middle office, both from a digitization perspective as well as the automation perspective, right? So it allows uh, businesses to automate that whole you know, process uh, between the front office and marketing and the back office and, uh, you know, finance and accounts receivables and, and like that. So uh, it's that automation of the middle office that Aerosolate does. Yeah. For a lot of our audience, they're in technical roles and they work on different software components or they might be engineering other solutions out there. They might not understand exactly the problem that you're solving. I personally have worked in an office environment for most of my life and I've felt the pain of document management and so on. But I was hoping you could kind of share a little bit for our audience, like what exactly is the problem? Because, you know, it's easy to say, hey, we are 
no code document workflows from e-signatures payments from web forms and contracts you know some of the lang- lingo there but give our audience a flavor of like just how painful this process can be at a company without a tool like airslate yeah absolutely i mean i think that a lot of the things that happen behind the scenes and really uh documents and payments are the lifeblood of businesses in a lot of ways uh, and a lot of uh, SaaS and software has really traditionally been focused on data storage rather than uh, yeah. data transport. And what we provide is that middle layer between data storage and uh, and the recipient or whoever it is. So, like for example, if you're an employee, you have to fill out a lot of forms. You have to go through a lot of processes, whether it's expense uh, reimbursements or whether it's asking for personal time off or whatever it is. And there's a system that stores a lot of that information. And then there's you that actually, you know, initiates that interaction with the employer. Uh, But there's uh, very little middle ground in between and very little automation there, right? So like, for example, approval by your boss, sending that data onto the system of record to your HRIS, uh, or whatever, like things like that. And we do a lot of that automation using both the presentation layers so that you can actually see the context of the data that you're interacting with, as well as the routing and automation uh, in the cloud using no-code uh, RPA. Another example is uh, all of the interactions between the business and the customers. All of that you know, has, on one hand, like a CRM, like a Salesforce or something along those lines, and then on the other side, there is a recipient that needs to interact uh, with the business, right? So, for example, purchase orders or, or you know, uh, they have to do some legal uh, work or they have to do uh, quote to cash, quoting systems for salespeople uh, and on and on and on. And we automate that interaction between the business uh, and the recipient in a way that keeps that data between the business uh, and the recipient uh, and the customer, rather. Uh, flowing smoothly uh, between the two and also in the cloud and onto the systems of record that can be used for analytics and other things like that. Yeah. So in my previous role, and you know, I'm curious to understand more what you th- where you think this is headed. In my previous role, I worked as a VP of sales of an organization that had 100 sales reps. And exactly what you said, like there's a lot of paperwork flowing in between and out of systems. And then eventually we decided, hey, we need to automate some things. And we hired like consultants to come in. Uh, we were using Salesforce at the time. And of course, they you know updated our, our setup. They configured some different applications. Soon we were plugging in Zwar to do billing. We were doing you know all the different different types of tools and integrations. So we see in the tech cycle, there's always like, hey, specialists, they build special tools to do special things. And then the big players try to integrate those special tools as features. And it like tries to like, you know, the ecosystem goes from a lot of different players to like a few players and then new specialists break out. Where do you see yourself in between? Because like you, you're in this place where, in my opinion, all like the enterprise players are always trying to I think build what you guys have, like do, or they want to do what you do, right? But they're not as good at it. Give us an idea of how you see your ecosystem because we know that every system is trying to integrate more features, more capabilities. They want to make it seamless. They always talk about making seamless integrations with information. But we know that at the same time, businesses is always trying to go after best of breed, trying to do things differently. Give us us your perspective on that ecosystem and where you see AirSlate fitting in. Um, I think that, You're exactly right. I think a lot of the enterprise players want to do what we do, um, and they don't exactly for the reason that I think that you've also mentioned, which is that 
they're trying to build using a an outdated model of in my opinion an outdated model of building the products uh, we follow a product-led growth approach uh, in this in Airslate, uh, where you know some of the tenets of product-led growth is meeting your customer at uh, the point of problem, right? And I think that a lot of people are trying to create demand uh, inside of their customers and trying to tell them that you know this is the way that you're supposed to be doing this, and that creates specialized software. Uh, where the software dictates the actual process. And so we do something that's completely the opposite of that, where if you have a problem, we provide you the tools that are flexible and powerful enough in order to not to change the process and to do it the way that you want to do it uh, without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on you know, consultants and uh, API development and whatever, and make this accessible uh, to the buyer rather than to the implementer, right? So, and I think that also differentiates us in the sense that the user is the person who actually is responsible for a lot of that process automation, right? So in the case of sales, you know, sales ops, uh, these are the people that are director level sales ops, for example, right? And so uh, right now, what they have to do is they have to go through this whole process. They have to call somebody, they have to get consultants, they have to get integrators, they have to pay a lot of money in order to actually make this work. And then it doesn't work in the way that they want it to work. They want it, in the, they, it works in the way that the system allows it to work. And so we change that completely in the sense that we give the person who is actually responsible for the result the power to implement that result as well uh, without the need of consultants. And we're very unique in the space uh, in that sense. And I think that uh, that allows us to reach a much wider audience rather than focusing on the Fortune 500 and the people who have like million dollar budgets in order to implement these things. We reach to everybody and a lot of our customers are government institutions and they're small clinics and um, they are nonprofits. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work in education uh, as well. And we also have, you know, million dollar ARR customers who are Fortune 500 customers, big insurance companies and, yeah. you know, uh, things like that because we bring down the cost of implementation without actually sacrificing the flexibility of uh, and the power of the product. Yeah, and in the past couple of years, there's been this rise of, I call them middleware tools, but like that's just my terminology for it, where it's like, hey, this software is actually designed to move information from A to B versus yeah. like, hey, I'm gonna build a feature kit of everything. I'm curious, how did you make the decision to go down this path? Because you had PDF filler, it was built, you were building that business, you mentioned it got to a $16 million run rate. Give us an idea. Were you already moving in that direction while PDF filled were like, hey, we're going to go start building the toolkits that allow businesses to move information from whatever tools they want, whether it's in ours or others? You know, I'm curious, when did you guys make that strategic decision to say, like, we're going to be like the pipeline, we're going to be the building kit, the toolkit that's going to allow this to happen versus like, hey, I'm going to build the all in one solution, which is, you know, of course, something people people do decide. Look, I, I think that uh, there's a couple of things that spurred this on. When we were building PDF Filler, and we're still continuing to build PDF Filler, PDF Filler is uh, the largest and most powerful PDF editing solution in the cloud. It has close to a million paying uh, customers. Yeah. And so uh, that's been a very successful product for us. But when our customers uh, came to us and they started to use PDF Filler, uh, which was really a digitization tool, 
they started asking for more workflow. And the first part of the workflow that they started asking for is e-signature. And e-signature really is a workflow solution in the sense that what e-signature does and the value that it provides is not the ability to sign the documents, but really the ability to send the documents for signature. That's the part that a lot of people don't understand about the e-signature space is that it's actually a workflow automation, uh, document workflow automation space. And when we bought Sign Now in order to complement uh, PDF Filler and, and bring that uh, capabilities into PDF Filler, uh, and we started talking to Sign Now customers, what we understood was that the biggest problem uh, that people faced was actually not the uh, simple workflows, not the ability to send out the document for signature and then br uh, bring it back, but really the configuration and automation of much more complicated document workflows. So I'll give you examples, you know, like, yeah, I want to send uh, out this quote only after a, you know, an opportunity in my CRM changes status from, you know, lead to qualified lead or something like that, right? And so the ability to do that really involved tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of integrations, API development and other things like that. Wow. That was really, really expensive. And so what we decided was that we would essentially bring down that cost of configuration and deployment from hundreds of thousands of dollars to single digit thousands of dollars using no code RPA solution. And that's how we came upon this uh, idea that it's not enough to digitize and maybe create very simple workflows, but really uh, you, in order to create a unified solution, you have to be able to create something that's flexible and powerful enough on one hand and accessible uh, to the end customers, non-technical uh, end users on the other. Yeah. I got to ask, when you were first, you know, you, you were approached, hey, I want you to join PDF Filler. This is, so you were doing something different. As the world of enterprise document management workflows started expanding, were you? What was your reaction to like how complicated it actually was? Because it's one of those things where it's I think it's simple to say like, oh, I just need this contract. Hey, Boria, I just need a tool that makes you know as soon as this status changes, I want to be able to send a quote. It sounds so simple, and yet, like you just said, you're talking about tons of API calls, tons of configs, tons of uh, customizations. Did you understand at that time how, I guess challenging the problem would be to solve. No, and I think that that was the reason for our success is that we didn't know how hard it was going to be. Uh, and, you know, so like, and that if, if we did, we'd never actually go down this road. Uh, so, and I think that that's a story of a lot of entrepreneurs is that they are ignorant of all of the detailed, you know, problems that are waiting for them. And so they think that it's simpler than it really is. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do, so for us, we were lucky in that we started with something very simple and then we let our customers guide us towards the next step and the next step and the step after that, right? And so that allowed us to continuously build upon an existing customer base and really solve real problems to re for real people rather than create, you know, uh, abstract, very complicated sort of uh, constructions about value creation. Uh, and so I think that that allowed us to continuously build that product arc. And the other, the other part that I think really helped us out uh, as well is that we were really focused on uh, making it very, very simple for uh, everyday people. And we never really yeah. had an idea of something that we would end up as being. We were just continuously innovating on the things that we already had and making it better for the customers that already used our products.
All right. So, so that that's where I wanted to get into next, which is the rise of low code. You know, low code has been a promise for, I think, a long time. It seems to be growing even more prominently today. But one of the things that's always been challenging is developing an interface that, like you said, a non-technical person can understand. Like that's everyone recognizes, I think, that that's the key. If we can, you can unlock that, you have a better chance. How have you and how has your team approached in building uh, usually it's at the interface level, which is like, hey, how do I how do I build something that you know a non technical person can understand? It's very hard to it's very hard to define. I like to think of it back in the days of cameras. If you remember, like cameras in the two, early two thousands, they had like what seemed like a hundred buttons and forty five menus, and like people like people need all this stuff. And then over time, people figured out that actually, if you Build all the like uh, the like focus tools into software and just give them one button. That's actually what they want. They actually don't want these options, which is challenging because in the world of enterprise config, I need options because you don't know what I'm configuring A to B, right? And so you in particular, I feel like AirSlate particularly is got to be pretty good at this because if you're solving for this, this is great because every company wants to handle their documents. I feel like their own way. Which, which means you got to build a tool that gets them the ability to handle things their own way. How do you guys approach solving that problem? Because that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I look, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I mean, I think that's the, really the right question to ask. Um, and so there's two things that work in our favor. One is we really follow a Kaizen approach. A lot of people think that they're going to think of something, build it, and then, you know, and then that's going to work. And I think you, you, the, the analogy with cameras is exactly the right analogy in the sense that you start with something that's simple and then you try it out and then you decrease the complexity of it with follow on products, right? And so Kaizen is a Japanese word for constant change. Uh, and we consist of constantly change our products internally. And actually our teams, our product teams have uh, engagement and, and usage OKRs, which they need to meet on a, on a quarterly basis that simplify product usage and increase engagement uh, with customers. And so over time, that broadly uh, improves our uh, funnel, right? So product-led growth funnel uh, in the sense that more people actually go through the product. And every time we think about these new changes, the way we think about them is we think about linearity of the product. We think about making the product less complex from a you know branching perspective in the sense that you have only one option uh, to do at, at a given time. And that really helps people go through these processes and make the interface a lot more clear because you only have one option. How will, you know, if you only have one button and that one button does everything for you, well, then you have an iPad, you know, and that was brilliant, right? <laughs> and I mean, I think that that, that was one of the uh, insights and we sort of follow that, that model as we continuously improve the product. And I think the other part is that uh, initially when you think about the architecture of the product, you have to think about how to make this architecture very, very flexible. And we used mm. a, an analog of, um, of a programming model uh, called uh, MVC, Model View Controller, uh, which separates the logic from the presentation, from the data storage. Uh, and that is a model which became very popular in 2000s uh, and was really the beginning of Web 2.0, where you know web was not only the delivery of information, uh, but really the logic and the application layer on top of that information. Uh, and I think that when people understood that they had to build in that logic layer, it had to be separate in order for it to work. So 
Facebook, for example, you know, looks the same uh, for you and for me, but the information that it delivers yeah. uh, is very different. And that logic layer that says, you know, this post, uh, you know, gets shown to Albert and this post gets shown to Boria, uh, that logic layer is very separate from like what you actually see, it, you know, inside of Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. Uh, and we use a very similar kind of a construct in order to create a tool that is, on one hand, infinitely flexible, on the other uh, hand, very modular, uh, so that mm -hmm. things look the same on one hand, but you can combine them in different ways in order to make a myriad or like a combinatorially large number of possible uh, solutions. When you think about your, you know, I, I keep thinking back to your OKRs and we just said, right, you said like infinite combinations, because that's what your customers, you, you just cannot predict what your customers are going to want them, information, how they're going to want it to move. Well, how do you evaluate like your team? Meaning like, hey, we're doing a good job because these people are able to make their decisions quickly. Is it like time on screen? Is it time, you know, like time being between steps? Is it completed integrations? Like how do you, how do you measure success there? Because you, truly, each of your users is, you know, like you said, they're using the same tool, but they're all going down different paths. Yeah. So we actually have a very data-driven product development strategy. And one of the ways that we approach that is we break up the product into individual funnels. So every screen is in one way or another a funnel and a product team is responsible for, you know, managing that funnel. And the funnel is defined by the number of people that actually go into that screen and the number of people that end up uh, successfully leaving that screen, doing something on it. And so uh, each product team is responsible for improving the conversion rate from the people that actually were interested in trying to do something and uh, the number of people that actually successfully completed whatever that screen allowed you to uh, to do. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, I didn't because I, I was thinking about like because each number might be potentially different, right? Like time, like how long it takes someone to do something because like they might be trying to figure out something infinitely more complicated. So I didn't know how you were doing, but you're just saying like, Hey, do they successfully get the job done? Yes. Awesome. When you think about like, uh, where you're going, we notice, for example, that you have like all like bot selection, which makes it even easier. I have, you know, if I don't even, it sounds like I don't, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking a look at some of the options, like, you know, save to Google drive, export to Google sheets. Uh, these are similar things like what Zapier offers, which is like, Hey, I've, I've pre-configured this. So you like, you're like selecting for a menu, like, Oh, I want to do these kinds of things. What do you see for the future of making this even easier? Because that's the race, right? It's always going to be infinite capability. That's even easier than before. How do you envision handle your, your company? Like what innovations down the pipe do you think you're going to want to integrate? that are going to make this even easier for users to, to manage their workflows. I think the thing that we do that uh, really nobody else in the industry does is give the ability to people uh, to create very complicated, uh, very complicated computations and very complicated logic, but uh, mm. package that into something that's repeatably uh, runnable, right? And I think that again, if you look at uh, uh, if you look at, at computer development, software development. You see a lot of that with creation of libraries, right? So like what allows software to be created um, exponentially? It's the fact that nobody, nobody does web development in assembly anymore, right? I mean, like, you know, yeah. nobody, uh, because <laughs> between you and assembly, there's like a bunch of different subroutines and libraries that people have written before you. And open source allows you to utilize all of that work in order to create something that's 
you know, repeatable and reusable on one hand, and on the other hand, you didn't actually spend time encoding it. And what we're doing is we're giving the our customers the ability to create, you know, flows, bots, and a bunch of things like that that are reusable and that can be shared. So, for example, like you know, we have a bunch of people that are building AI bots, right? So, and those AI bots look at the data that goes through that particular document workflow automation pro, uh, you know, uh, workflow uh, and try to predict certain values and try to understand, you know, what the recipient behavior is and uh, make some decisions about what to do and, and things like that. And each one of these bots is responsible for its own little thing, but can be reused in, a, uh, in combination with other AI bots uh, in other document workflows that you create uh, in the future. And so this um, uh, compartmentalization of the logic layer really allows you to create something that is very, very flexible and very complex, but very, very quickly without having to actually code it every time. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. I'm imagining a future where it's like you get a Rolodex of steps like, hey, do you want to do this? It's like, oh, yeah, right. just add yeah, it. yeah, just yeah. like builders to just be like adding these things up together. That'd be phenomenal. Yeah. When it comes to your leadership style, I'm curious about that, because one of the things that we always ask CEOs is like, how do you manage and navigate the modern, you know, of building a tech company? Because right now you're in a, you know, every tech company is experiencing the same thing right now, which is increased customer demand, right? Customers want more and more. There's going to be more choice for employees because we all hear about companies, people leaving. So compensation can't just be the only thing. We can't, it's, there's not, doesn't exist where you can just be like, hey, I need you to do this. I want to pay you this much money. You do, you're going to get it done. How would you describe your leadership style? And also, I'd love to understand, like, does your background in academics influence your leadership style? Oh, it absolutely influences my leadership style. I think that, you know, I am very much uh, an academic in the way that I lead my team in the sense that in academia, you're supposed to be an expert and you're, the respect of the people that work with you come out of the fact that you provide value to them, right? And that value mm -hmm. comes from expertise. And so, you know, I, I really try to understand deeply uh, everything that my product teams and my marketing teams in a lot of ways and business teams do. Uh, not just on a high level, but really understand uh, the details of that, because I think that if I don't understand the details of it, then, you know, I have no place in that discussion and making a decision based on, on something that I don't understand deeply myself. So that's certainly one thing that I think separates me from a lot of people that I've spoken with. Uh, and, uh, and really, that, that's part of my leadership style. The other one is I really value data over expertise. Uh, and so that uh, creates a very meritocratic uh, culture. I think meritocratic culture in the sense that, you know, you can create a hypothesis or have any opinion that you want. And it doesn't matter whether you're a junior developer or whether you're a COO or whatever it is, but unless you can argument why we should be spending resources in trying that hypothesis, what the goals are from actually testing that, um, and how you're going to test it, we're not actually going to be doing this. And so that creates this culture of like, we do things in very different ways than other people do it. 
Uh, and sometimes it takes uh, longer for us to get to the right answer because we get to it ourselves rather than you know, take it for granted that it was the right answer. But on the other hand, that allows us to be able to scale it uh, much more because we know why the right answer is the right answer. And so we can double down on it. Um, and so we can continuously sort of expand uh, on the success that we've achieved ourselves. And I think that that also is very different um, from what a lot of other tech leaders do. And I think from a, from a recruiting perspective, you know, uh, we do things that are very different on one hand and on the other hand. And so we attract people who are entrepreneurial themselves, who are not afraid of challenges and uh, who really are responsible for what it is that they, they do and who have a lot of autonomy in being able to actually accomplish things in their own way. Uh, and I think that that makes it very different from a lot of the other tech companies uh, that really, you know, here's the, you know, which is much more top down in the sense that here's the right answer. This is what we're going to. Doesn't matter whether you <laughs> agree with this or not. And, you know, like, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. Go out and do it, you know. So uh, we have a very flat, autonomous team based structure where each team is really responsible for their part of the business. Uh, and I don't get involved unless I really understand, you know, what it is that I'm talking about. Well, listen, I know I know all of us have worked at a place where we answered to someone who we felt like didn't know much about our roles. So the fact that the first part where you said, hey, I want to you know, I want to know a little bit about every role before I can make a judgment or uh, add add to the conversation. The second part you were talking about was being extremely data driven. You know, I think a lot of tech leaders are data driven, but I'm curious about for you specifically because I, what I've, what I, this is what I think. Ultimately, I think what separates the great from the good is judgment, right? Which is like, hey, the data says this, right? So sometimes it's significantly different. So, for example, like you say, hey, let's go option A and let's go option B. What if option A and option B have similar results? How do you make judgments when there's not definitive data that says this is absolutely the right answer? How do you approach your judgment tree, like where you're gonna say, hey? We're going to do this, even though there's not data to support it. We might find data to support it later or debunk it later, but I'm making a judgment today. This is how I'm going to do it. How do you go about making judgments when there's not enough data to support a decision? I think a lot of uh, tech leaders think that they, they're, they, they perceive themselves as being data-driven, but I think that the way that we do uh, things are, is very different in the sense that mm. it's really very similar to the way that we did science in the sense that you're really hypothesis driven first. Okay. Uh, and then you create something that's very simple out of that hypothesis as an experiment. You look at the data that comes out of that experiment. And just like in science, you know, the null hypothesis is that uh, things are not going to work out, right? And you have to prove the opposite of that uh, when you're doing an experiment. And, you know, when we make a decision on whether, to, and we really never make a decision on whether to do something or not do something, we really make a decision on whether to scale it or not. Because when we do these experiments, we don't do them at scale. We do them on a very small number of, you know, users or customers or, uh, or whatever. And that really limits the amount of investment that we create before we actually have to make a decision. And the decision to scale it or not to scale it then comes from what is the return on investment on scaling that, right? So, 
for example, like you asked, you know, how do you make the decision if there's no difference? If there's no difference and it doesn't cost us anything and we think that strategically that's something that we want to move forward with, then we'll do it. If uh, there's no difference and it costs us a lot in order to scale something, then we're not going to do it because, gotcha. you know, the, the uncertainty in the return outweighs the investment that we would have to do in order to scale something. No, that makes total sense. I can see how that that plays a big part of just making judgments because it, I always say like, or based on the interviews I've had with different leaders, when you're building the future, there's not always data support what you're about to build. You know what I mean? So like, there, there's just not. Uh, in the, and that's why most innovations come from outside. You, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, most innovations actually come outside of the realm of expertise because it takes someone who has no clue right. to like sometimes make that call. And so I think that's it's really smart to say like, hey, I, I still have a criteria, even if I don't have a result that I want, like I thought experiment A and experiment B was significant to tell me the difference between the two. I still think having a, you know, there has to be a, a way, a method to make that judgment. So I appreciate you sharing that with, with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, look, I think that's what makes it fun uh, is uh, that continuous improvement on things. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the other thing that I think that uh, is very important is that Kaizen only works when you do these things uh, using very small steps. Yeah. Right? And I think that that's what makes us different as well is because when you have a vision, a lot of people and a lot of entrepreneurs think that they have to build their full vision and then, uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me and they ask me for like, you know, investment or something or advice, even, you know, they're like, well, I'm going to build out this like big thing. And, uh, and then I'm like, well, okay, so what are you going to do with it afterwards? And I'm like, well, you know, it's a big thing that's going to be work, uh, <laughs> that's going to be worth millions or billions of dollars. And it's just every, because it's going to be so much better. And I think that what people lose sight of is your first product is never going to be good enough right so and what people should focus on is i think this is you know now uh banal right like i i think a lot of people have been written about uh, a lot of things have been written about it from agile to you know whatever is that you want to get to an mvp yeah as fast as possible and that's when the real work starts right so the real work starts when you actually start improving on that mvp and the smaller and the simpler that mvp is the easier it's going to be for you to continuously improve on it uh, and uh, the faster you're going to get to that like you know exponential improvement part of the cycle and I think that's really, really important for people to understand is that you really want to focus on the latter part of that, right? So the improvement part of that, yeah. not the building of the first, you know, idea part of it, because the first idea is going to be wrong. Well, you're in the right field with that mentality, man. Software, I, I joke with people all the time. So the problem with software is it's never done. Like it's never yeah. good enough. Like, like just kind of like how you said your parents on your grades, right? It's true. Like whatever you have today is not good enough. Like there's someone else building something better. And the only industry I can think of where you can make something that's good enough, maybe is food. Like there's certain food products. They haven't changed their recipe for like decades. But outside of that, most, most technology, software, especially like you're never going to be done. So for anyone out there listening that says, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to build something. I think you got to take Boria's advice, which is like, whatever you think you're going to build, know that when you get there, it's not good enough. 
Like that's what's crazy. That's right. And so logically, logically, it's the process of improvement which is uh, which is more important than the actual idea of what you're going to build. And I think that 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 a lot of people don't understand that. So think about the great companies in the world. You know, uh, the great technology companies. You know, Microsoft, for example. Microsoft in the 1970s, right, with DOS, yeah. has nothing to do with Microsoft in 2022, right? It's a completely different yeah. company. It, it has completely different products. So it's not really the idea that, uh, that made them successful. It must be something else that made them successful. And I uh, posit that what made them successful is the process of improvement of that idea. And that's what makes companies great. It's when they lose that ability to consistently improve on the products that they, uh, that they created, that's when they start dying. And, and I think you said it right, is that nothing is, uh, not, everything is changing and, and the speed of that change is increasing uh, with time. Well, now I got, you know, now I got to ask, what do your parents think of you now? Because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure they love you very much. You know, it's like they, the, the, the push, the push from being the child of immigrants is always there. Do they think like, wow, boy, you did it. They do, but they're very confused about how. It doesn't actually, it doesn't make sense in their worldview. You know, they're like, we're not exact. This like breaks our whole like idea of how the world works because that should never have happened. And so they're happy for me, but they're also a little bit, you know, annoyed at the fact that I broke their whole worldview. <laughs> well, listen, I'm sure they're proud. You know what I mean? Like, that's pretty awesome that like, you got there. I'm, the, I'm in the same boat. Like my parents don't really understand what I do, but they just think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really the only thing that you can hope for, right? I mean, you want your parents yeah. to be happy, even if they're confused. <laughs> Boy, I appreciate you coming on our show today. Thanks for joining us on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing how you built Airslate. Uh, I think you, the way you approach it is, I mean, like you said, it's a recipe for success, which is this constant idea of iteration, continuous improvement, bringing that Kaizen model to your company. I mean, I think, you know, nothing, no success is ever guaranteed, but like if you're willing to change, you always have a better shot of getting there. Absolutely. Thanks, Albert. Thanks for having me.